Welcome to the podcast edition of Dream Talk Radio. I'm your host, Anne Hill, and every week I explore topics related to dreams, sleep, health, culture, and consciousness. Dream Talk Radio airs every Thursday from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific Time on KOWS 107.3 FM in Occidental, California. And you can catch the live stream at www.kows.fm. Meanwhile, I hope you enjoy this edition of Dream Talk Radio. You are listening to Dream Talk Radio. I'm your host, Anne Hill, every Thursday from 9 to 10. And this morning, I have a guest on the phone who this is promises to be a really interesting uh, conversation. We'll be talking to William Harris, who is Shepherd Professor of History at Columbia University and the director of the Center for the Ancient Mediterranean. Um, Professor Harris received the Andrew Mellon Foundation Distinguished Achievement Award and has recently come out with a book called Dreams and Experience, in classical antiquity. Uh, Professor Harris, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks very much for inviting me. So you, how long have you been studying this, uh, this time period, classical antiquity? Oh, well, all my career. Yeah. Uh, and I'm getting quite old now. I think that's a trade secret how old <laughs> I am. But, uh, in, in any case, uh, this is the field in which I got my PhD a long time ago, and uh, I've written about various aspects of uh, Greek, and, Greek and Roman history, and that's my, been my uh, professional concern all, all my career. Oh, well, I, I tell you, when I, when I read about this book uh, on a, an academic friend's blog, I just felt like I'd hit the mother load because... Um, as a dream researcher myself, I've been, you know, everybody, you always try to crawl back as far as you can in the written record and find out what's, how people thought about dreams. And to find, I mean, you basically have every written occurrence, uh, uh, reference to dreams and experience in ancient Greece and Rome here. And so it's just, you know, for that purpose alone, it's a completely fascinating read, so... Uh, on behalf of all dream researchers, I thank you for that. Well, thank you for the compliment. Uh, <laughs> it's not really a comprehensive book, as, uh, in in a sense, because there is so much material. It would yeah. have been uh, a very fat book in, indeed if I'd uh, covered every reference to mm-hmm. um, d- to dreams and uh, classical authors. And uh, I tried to make it readable, and uh, I tried to deal with some... Um, Specifically, interesting problems that I mm-hmm. that I, I came across, uh, and uh, not to you know to describe every single thing that anybody ever said on the subject, right. but to, to hone in on uh, some specially interesting questions. Well, I think it's it's really fascinating the questions that you that you uh, pose in your book, and I, I guess my first question for you is: out of all of the things that you could study about classical antiquity. How? Why did you come across? Why was this the the um, juicy place for you, <laughs> so to speak? It was certainly it's certainly a juicy subject. Um, I don't want to uh, bore you with a long autobiographical statement here, but uh, just in a nutshell, I've um, always been interested in uh, uh, psych- psychological, uh, psych- psychiatric uh, mm-hmm. questions, and uh, way back to when I was an undergraduate and. Uh, and uh, so I've studied some uh, history, some aspects of the psychological history of antiquity. And my previous project, my previous big project, that is, before the Dreams Project, was about emotions. And I wrote a book called Restraining Rage, the Ideology of Anger Control in mm-hmm. Classical Antiquity. And uh, 
so in a sense, this was a bit of a carry-on for that. But you know how it is. Uh, um, the projects that historians tend to write about often have uh, deep roots. And, mm-hmm. uh, and at the same time, they're also often provoked by immediate uh, puzzlement, immediate questions, specific historical puzzles. Uh, mm-hmm. For example, in this case, I was uh, very interested to try and work out what to think about the uh, cases of Perpetua, who was a Christian martyr around 200 AD, uh, and about the Emperor Constantine. Both of these people um, are uh, have uh, uh, important dreams attributed to them in the historical mm-hmm. record. Yes. But they're very puzzling records, uh, and I thought I would like to investigate those questions and uh, uh, those among others, because yes. there are lots and lots of puzzles. So there's a sort of general background, but specific historical uh, puzzles as well. And uh, one overarching theme in this, uh, I think, is that I'm very interested to try to work out how much um, the uh, Greeks and Romans thought in a scientific fashion, as mm-hmm. we understand that concept, and uh, why they uh, didn't do better, in a sense, because there were all sorts of very, very intelligent people who made lots and lots of progress on this and other subjects in antiquity. But still, you know, there were limits, and that's an interesting question to me as well. Well, I think one of the the first questions for me is one of the the first things that your book helped me get a a clear grasp of is how all of these different philosophers thought differently about dreams. Some had much more naturalistic um, explanations. Others were were more of the, well, it's the gods coming to us. You know, what's the big deal? And maybe you could just outline some of the the differences within that, that time frame. Yes, yeah, sure. Uh, there is, as you say, a tremendous range of opinion, and uh, all sorts of um, ideas were put were put forward. To take it on a on a relatively popular level, some people believe that dreams tell the truth. Some people uh, believe that dr- uh, dreams were just wasteless, uh, uh, just uh, rubbish, or right. like bits of broken glass, as somebody said. Um, and, but a very interesting thing about that is that I think a lot of people, and maybe this is true now as well, went backwards and forwards. Uh, uh, human beings aren't necessarily consistent. They may, for example, get frightened about a particular nightmare, but generally speaking, not think that dreams mean very much. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes people say, well, I had a dream which really seemed to be revealing in, in some sort of way, but mostly my dreams are just boring rubbish. Mm-hmm. Uh, that There is, in other words, no particular consistency to be expected from from humans on this uh, subject, and I don't uh, claim to be uh, uh, particularly consistent in my own attitude towards my mm-hmm. own dreams. As far as the, the more cer- cerebral people are concerned, uh, then there's a, a considerable variety of, of opinion as well. But there is also a kind of uh, cum- accumulation of good ideas on this subject. And it's interesting to see that to some extent there was a community of thinkers in antiquity who built on each other's ideas. Mm -hmm. I make a lot in my book about how uh, intelligent Aristotle was on the subject of dreams. We've we've got uh, several little essays that Aristotle wrote on this subject, and he's really very good. But uh, he would have been the first person to admit, I think, that uh, he didn't think of all of these ideas for himself. He drew on the ideas of earlier Greek thinkers, particularly uh, Empedocles and Democritus, Mm -hmm. and he also was very much aware of what the rational 
physicians of the 5th century and earlier 4th century BC, uh, mm-hmm. the famous Hippocratic doctors, right. Hippocrates and his followers, uh, had said on the subject of dreams. Uh, so uh, there is there's an accumulation of information, and then it, it continues a bit after that. But then after a while, uh, the um, research, if we want to use that word, that, that ancients did about dreams yeah. kind of petered out. And you can understand that in a way, because uh, there were no uh, easily available methods for doing any uh, research. They didn't have uh, any capacity for doing modern kinds of neurology, for example. Mm-hmm. And also, it has to be said that, that it may not have seemed like the most urgent medical or scientific problem a lot of the time to understand dreams. Dreams are mysterious. We'd all like to understand them better. But they're not, um, they're, they're not an urgent pressing problem like the uh, health problems that uh, press most people most of the time. So, uh, so eventually, uh, thinking on the subject, I think, uh, ground to a halt and only, and only really started again in the 19th century in a big way. Do you think that had anything to do with um, around two, four, six hundred AD, the Christian church coming in and, and the, the age of philosophy was in, some, in many respects over because there was a, a sort of a, uh, an ideology that people had to fit within. And dreams are, are, they sort of break boundaries. You can't really easily discuss them within a very strict cosmology, per se. Yes, I do think that there's no, there's no denying that there is an anti-naturalistic uh, view, uh, uh, which is held by the leading Christian thinkers of already of uh, the third and fourth centuries AD, maybe mm-hmm. earlier as well. And you can see that in, uh, for example, Tertullian and and uh, other Christian yeah. authors. Uh, whom I refer to in, in, in my book, this is a sort of fairly well established that uh, the uh, Christians thought that understanding the world in a in a naturalistic kind of way was a waste of time or indeed yeah. dangerous. And dreams, as you say, being a boundary, a kind of boundary subject, mm-hmm. uh, were a bit of a uh, source of anxiety for them. Uh, some Christians tried, including um, uh, Augustine, for example, and his contemporary mm-hmm. Synesius, tried. Uh, pretty hard to understand uh, what dreams are about, but uh, dreams are, are kind of dangerous stuff, and they had already always been, I think, for the cr- Christians, because uh, some dreams uh, seem to come uh, from divine sources, and other yeah. dreams seem to be uh, extremely, extremely troublesome in in various ways. Yes, you can see that actually already in the in the nativity narratives in the Gospels, because. In the nativity narrative in the Gospel of Matthew, for example, dreams play a big role. There are four or five of them, and they play a crucial role right at the beginning, as I'm sure many of our listeners remember. And uh, in the Gospel of Luke, on the other hand, they're completely invisible. And and I think that that reflects a division of opinion about whether dreams were a respectable way of knowing the future Mm -hmm. or not. And the Christians continue to be uh, divided about, about that. Maybe they still are. Undoubtedly. <laughs> One of the, the, the things I thought uh, fascinating is you, uh, you talk about the, um, well, one of the the places where I have done some research for my dissertation years ago was uh, the dream incubation temples, yeah. uh, the Asclepia and, and so forth. And you, you did research about that? Well, I'm very interested to hear that. Secondary sources are my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Not to worry about that. But, so one of the big question marks from my reading at that point was it seemed like the, um, the steli, the, 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 the um, 
things that t- the testimonials that people left at the uh, which you uh, describe many and refer to many of them in your book uh, in the earlier years of of those temples they were they 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 basically told the story of the god came to me in my dream and and now i'm i'm not i'm no longer blind i can see the next day yeah. i walked out and so there's all these stories of of direct um, a sort of divine intervention dreams. And then later on, it seemed like they were much more prescriptive dreams that people were writing about. Well, the God came to me, and then I, I interpreted that, or the, the priest interpreted that to mean that, oh, I have to uh, exercise and eat right. You know, it, it just seemed like there was yeah. a qualitative difference. And, and I was fascinated and very happy to find that you, you actually touched in on that quite a bit on your book. And so maybe you can explain that a bit. Well, yes, I'm, I'm not sure whether there's a, a clear-cut uh, chronological division about that, because Asclepius, who is the most important of the Greek gods concerned, not the only one, um, but he was the person who presided over most of the uh, incubation mm-hmm. uh, sanctuaries in, in the Greek world. Uh, Asclepius um, was always capable of performing uh, miracles, and, uh, and he continued to be a, a very powerful God in the eyes of people uh, relatively late on in the uh, ancient story. Uh, uh, For example, the physician Galen, who is a a very rational being in lots of ways, regarded Asclepius as uh, being um, a very, very powerful God. But uh, there is there is a, perhaps a certain uh, a certain tendency to move on from um, uh, just doing miracles to giving advice, mm-hmm. but um, it partly depends who you're who you're listening to because uh, clearly Galen was uh, being a, a doctor was more interested in uh, in the advice that he might get in a, in, a, in a dream, uh, for yeah. example, um, uh, rather than in miracles because he thought that. Uh, uh, the actual healing work was that was going to be carried out by doctors and according to uh, his particular ideas of how doctors ought to operate as yeah. well uh, so uh, but there is a very there is a very long uh, story about incubation dreams and it go, and it seems to go on after a lot of the after in fact virtually all of the shrines in question had either been shut down by the Christians or in some cases taken over by the Christians and so uh, this transfers over into the medieval world where it's uh, saints, uh, not right. Asclepius, um, who are performing the miracles uh, or occasionally giving the advice. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's such a puzzle, and I don't think there's any chicken and egg in here, but it, it was remarkable to me to think that, uh, for instance, Hippocrates and his father and so forth, were all they, they all worked there at the Asclepia on, on coast, I believe, and, and, and the first surgical tools were found there. And so I'm thinking, well, did dreams help people figure out what kind of treatments would work for different ailments, or were people just experimenting this with this, and then based on what they had available, people's dreams sort of uh, ascribed to those boundaries when they came into the temple to dream. I, you know, it's one of those unknowable questions, but it's fascinating to me. Well, there is a there is a tough question there because, um, and a question which I don't uh, completely resolve in this book, and I, I would like to go back to it at some point. Uh, how much cooperation there was between the the incubation shrines um, and the rational or rationally operating physicians. Mm-hmm. I think, in fact, there was um, a lot of the time a good deal of competition. Uh, you referred to the island of Kos, and that mm-hmm. is 
houses to one of the, that's the famous center of the Hippocratic school. But that wasn't an incubation shrine uh, mm-hmm. on, a, on a major scale. The, the places where people went for incubation, well, there's a, there's a, a list of them uh, in classical Greece. The most famous one is Epidaurus, which, right. which, which in turn was not a place where doctors went to train. So mm-hmm. th- there is a degree of uh, cooperation between Asclepius and the rational uh, physicians. And mm-hmm. the, ph- the physicians regard Asclepius as their so to speak, that patron deity. Uh, but um, there is, I think, competition rather between the incubation shrines where generally things were not very rational and, mm-hmm. and the rational physicians. When I use the expression rational physicians, by mm-hmm. the way, I'm not uh, suggesting that anybody should try to um, uh, follow the medical advice of the Hippocratic <laughs> uh, or in, in, indeed of, of Galen. But uh, those, those people were trying to understand disease and, uh, yes. and uh, cures for disease uh, on a strictly rational plane. And so that's why I call them ra- rational physicians. Well, sure, they were actually yeah. doing, they, they were cutting up cadavers to look at uh, circulation. I mean, Galen got it famously wrong about the heart and circulation. Yes, and indeed. thank heavens we're living in, in the age of Harvey, if we have yeah. anything going on in our hearts. Well, yeah, thank, thank goodness we're living in the age of, of uh, modern medicine uh, yes. in, in general. Um, I, I don't know about you, but uh, but uh, I wouldn't be in existence if it weren't for medical discoveries that were made um, in the 20th century. So, yeah. uh, that is Definitely true for um, me too. Yes. So uh, anyway, go on. What okay. were you going to? Okay. Well, uh, first, I should just uh, let people know that you are listening to Cows. This is Dream Talk Radio. I'm your host, Anne Hill, and I'm talking this hour with William Harris, who is a professor of uh, history at Columbia University, and his book, Dreams and Experience in Classical Antiquity, is what we are delving into today. You can find this fabulous book, very readable, by the way. I really enjoyed reading it. Even though it was, you know, I was I was blithely um, skipping over the footnotes, and in that sense, it's it's great because the actual text of each page is usually about a half of the page, and the rest is footnotes. So it actually went rather quickly. Plus, you're a great writer. So, anyway, you can find dreams and experience in classical antiquity at Amazon and various other places. So back to the subject matter. Um, one of the things you mentioned earlier was was the the conversation back and forth uh, during that the classical antiquity about whether dreams told the truth or were rubbish. And I immediately uh, was reminded of Penelope's famous dream in the Iliad, where she talks about the gates of of horn and ivory. Yes, I'm so glad you mentioned that because that's really one of the uh, very best uh, dream stories that any ancient author tells in book 19 of the Odyssey, where, uh, where uh, it's, uh, uh, which is a really rather subtle story. The mm-hmm. basic story, as I'm sure to, uh, as a lot of your listeners remember, is that Penelope, who is sitting in her palace wondering whether her husband Odysseus is still alive or not, and more to the point wondering whether she ought to marry one of the numerous suitors who are trying to, pers- uh, trying to persuade her, uh, dreams that um, she dreams about her pet geese. She has 20 geese, and and she dreams that an eagle comes down and kills all of her geese. The geese, obviously, uh, in her imagination, it seems to be fairly obvious, represent uh, the suitors, in fact. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, then the eagle who 
has killed the geese reveals himself to her as Odysseus uh, mm-hmm. and says, "I'm alive. I'm coming back," and so on. Uh, and um, uh, but it, it's a curious thing because um, Penelope is very upset that her geese have been have, have been killed. And in fact, there's a, a delicate suggestion in the poem, therefore, that uh, Penelope, far from being the perfect wife who thought only of Odysseus, was actually rather um, sorry that uh, mm-hmm. uh, she had not r- uh, run off with one of the suitors. But then she says, um, uh, to come back to the point mm-hmm. that you raised, that um, you don't know whether to trust dreams or not, because mm-hmm. dreams come through two gates. Mm-hmm. Some of them come through the gates of horn, and some of them come through the gates of ivory. And the ones that come through the gates of horn uh, tell the truth, and the ones that come through the gates of ivory uh, are false, misleading, and so on and so on. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and this, this wonderful image, Wonderful, but some, somewhat puzzling as well, yes. because it's not clear why uh, the poet chose horn and ivory right. as the particular substances in question. This uh, wonderful image w- then was repeated over and over again in antiquity, and f- famously by Virgil at the end of uh, mm-hmm. Book Six of the Aeneid. Um, and I think it's a, a, a splendid image, uh, which uh, suggests that, indeed, uh, lots and lots of people in antiquity, I think most people in antiquity, thought that some dreams might contain some useful information of some kind or some, mm-hmm. some, something true, but that uh, a lot of them were rather plainly not vehicles of truth at all. Yes. So uh, that, that is... Um, there are several wonderful uh, stories in Homer about dreams, and uh, yes. the, uh, and uh, always rather sophisticated stories. You know, people think of Homer as being an archaic poet, somehow yes. sort of simple-minded character. Uh, but, but no, no, a very, a very uh, sophisticated artist indeed, I think, and it comes out very much in this story in Odyssey 19. Yeah, well, yeah, absolutely, and, and I've um, the the story in the in Homer about Agamemnon having the false dream is one yep. I I used when I I was writing about you know the movie Inception. Did you see that with Leonardo DiCaprio and so forth? Yes, yes. Yeah. You know, I was my point was this is a really old fear: people yeah. fearing that dreams came from somewhere else and could deceive you. <laughs> yes, indeed. this is yeah. a really really old plot line. <laughs> Nothing in Hollywood is new. <laughs> You tempt me to tell stories because, or uh, to, to steal stories from other people, I must say, because another wonderful story, uh, which, which is in my book, which uh, I'm, I'm sure you remember, uh, is told by Herodotus about right. uh, Xerxes when he was going to invade Greece. Do you remember that one? Yes, well, why don't you let people enjoy well, that one? Uh, Xerxes, king of Persia, very powerful. He's about to invade Greece with an overwhelming army and so on. This is you know, a very mm-hmm. dramatic moment, obviously, in Herodotus' history. But he hesitates. He's not really sure whether this is a good idea or not, whether it's worth the effort. But then he has uh, a dream uh, which uh, tells him to go on, not to hesitate. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and then he takes no notice of this dream. Uh, it's only a dream, after all. So the dream comes back again. And then it comes back a third time. And so by this time, even, even Xerxes is going to realize that yeah. something serious is, is going on. And Herodotus lets you understand that, this, that some god or other, he doesn't say who, is sending this dream. Mm-hmm. And then the story gets even better because uh, Xerxes has an uncle. His name is Artabanus. And Artabanus says um, in, this, in this story, don't take any notice. Dreams are, and this 
sounds very 20th century or 21st century. He says, dreams don't mean anything. They're just reminiscences of things mm -hmm. which you experienced during the day. Right. Uh, you know, elements from things which went on during the day, which, of course, is all uh, Helen true Hobson about, right some, there. about some dreams. Mm -hmm. uh, but, of course, uh, Xerxes uh, ignores his advice and goes on, carries out this expedition. And, of course, it's for him, a complete disaster. Yeah. Uh, and so the gods misled him. <laughs> and uh, um, as, and Herodotus is uh, very, very satisfied with the story, I think we can, we can say. It's just, just right, because it allows Herodotus to show that he knows uh, that there are rational explanations of dreams. But at the same time, Herodotus likes to likes prophecies to come true. All, there are yes. lots of dreams in Herodotus, and almost uh, all of them come, tr come true in one way or another. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, just this points out one of the things that I found fascinating. One of the questions that you ask and, and you try and sort of unravel the strands of in your book is, well, people in the ancient world had these dream reports, but what did they really dream? What did they really experience? Yes, indeed. Well, that's a tough one, isn't it? Because yeah. after all, um, if I uh, told you what I dreamt last night, you wouldn't know whether I was telling mm -hmm. the truth, would you? Um, because it's a... It's a private experience, right. uh, and uh, so how can, how can we possibly tell? Uh, and some people thought I was wasting my time, I must say, asking whether people r really dreamt this or that um, in antiquity. Uh, but I found it rather an intriguing question, because after all, um, on the one side, uh, we know that people had lots and lots of reasons for inventing dreams, yeah. literary reasons, religious reasons, and so on and so on. And on the other side, we think we know um, a great deal about what dreams are actually like. Yeah. When you come down to defining that, it's a bit difficult. But anyway, we, 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 know, we know a lot about uh, what dreams are like. So let's take a look at these stories, new, very numerous stories like mm -hmm. the uh, ones that I've just told, but c concentrating on ones which claim to be factual, um, yeah. um, which, of course, is not... The true, uh, which is not true in quite the same way uh, with the Odyssey or the Iliad, but um, that, that, uh, Herodotus was claiming to give, uh, give a historical account and so on. Lots of other people did similar things. Um, and uh, so let's see whether those dream narratives uh, actually uh, sound like dreams or not. And let's have a look at the question whether the people who told the stories in question had some vested interest mm -hmm. um, in telling telling right. stories of this kind and when you and when you look at the ancient narratives from this point of view uh, you get some quite an interesting results you get also i think get some um, unanswerable questions uh, and the questions about perpetua for example mm -hmm. perpetua was um, a christian martyr who uh, experienced uh, four uh, major dreams, according to the uh, according to the hagiography written about about her, yeah. and uh, uh, when she was that is to say, when she was about to be martyred, and these texts are uh, in some sense uh, very very implausible. They're, they are much too um, much too tidy. They tell us, uh, just the kind of story that a Christian uh, would like to tell um, about a, a dream. They don't, yeah. have the, they don't have the sort of randomness, inconclusiveness, illogicality, bizarreness. Of, um, well, they right. have some bizarreness. I shouldn't, uh, I shouldn't um, mis misstate the case. Um, but uh, that real dreams uh, have a, a lot of the time. So Perpetua is an open case, I think, to some extent, mm -hmm. uh, and a rather complicated case. 
on the other hand, when um, Constantine, uh, he'd probably been awake all night, I think, but um, um, when Constantine met his soldiers on the morning of the most important battle um, in his career, the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, this mm-hmm. was the battle which uh, led to the establishment of a Christian Roman Empire, 312 AD. Constantine is just outside Rome. He's a usurper attacking the uh, established emperor, Maxentius. Uh, And the night before the battle, uh, the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, as as I say, uh, Constantine said to his soldiers that he'd had a wonderful dream, uh, which had given him instructions about uh, putting uh, a cross on the a Cairo on the shields of the soldiers, mm-hmm. and uh, and guaranteed that the uh, Constantine's side would win, which they duly did. Uh, and this was a very very important moment in the rise of Christianity. Yeah. Uh, and it was a very very convenient dream for Constantine yes. to have had. Furthermore, we know that Roman generals uh, on a number of previous occasions had also announced on the morning of the battle <laughs> that uh, they'd had convenient dreams saying, uh, essentially, we're going to win, guys, don't worry. Uh, and, uh, uh, and so uh, I've argued in, in, in a lot of detail that Constantine uh, made, up this, uh, made up this dream. It was his, in mm-hmm. his interest to do so. It was a, it was a very, very good idea. Uh, it, it certainly encouraged uh, some of the soldiers to think that yeah. they were going to win. Uh, Constantine was a, a very, very efficient general. Mostly he didn't rely on dreams. He relied on uh, things like um, careful planning and good logistics and so on <laughs> and so on. But, uh, uh, but part of his psychological skill with his soldiers was to know that yes. he, he could get away with a, sto- right. a, a story like this. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so you can work out, I think, sometimes whether stories are true or uh, or let, let's say likely to be true or li- yeah. likely to be untrue. Yes. Well, it, it's an interesting question, and I, I mean, I think uh, it, from the perspective of a dream worker, it doesn't really matter whether a person no. is fibbing or extrapolating or making something up out of whole cloth or actually, you know, because there's always it always tells you something about the person, no matter yes, what but, it is. Um, can I say something about, oh, about that? Sure. I, I think that um, yeah. Maybe um, <laughs> I'm older than you are, but I can say that. So I think I can say this to you. I think that, that I think that's a slightly old-fashioned <laughs> take on the subject uh-huh. in, in a way. Um, I'm referring to the big change which has come about in uh, psychoanalyst use of yeah. dreams over the last uh, well, we could say now 40 years. I guess the, the uh-huh. key developments really right. took place in the 1970s. I think um, uh, whereby. Uh, at one time, you know, that uh, psychoanalysts were um, interested uh, overwhelmingly in what was called the latent dream. Yeah. Um, uh, right. In other words, not the dream that you think you dreamt, but uh, but uh, the dream that lay underneath it in, in, in some way. And mm-hmm. they distinguished between the manifest dream, that is to say, the, the thing which you can actually remember, and the latent dream. Um, and the manifest dream was considered to be merely an instrument on the way to uh, right. finding out what the latent dream was. And, and you found out about the latent dream by analyzing the, the patient at length. Uh, and that point of view was, was dominant in psychoanalysis uh, from the time when uh, Freud first wrote about mm-hmm. dreams in a big way in, in uh, 1900 down to the 1970s. But then psychoanalysts, uh, and I sh- should uh, 
hasten to add that I'm not a psychoanalyst. I'm mm-hmm. just an interested observer uh, of uh, psychoanalysis. Uh, um, changed uh, direction to uh, to uh, a very great extent. Freudianism uh, in this uh, area went into uh, considerable retreat, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, the manifest dream got to be uh, an important uh, subject for psychoanalysts and psychotherapists, and uh, uh, varying, of course, according yeah. to their approaches. Uh, to to the subject. Well, that's absolutely true, and I, I certainly wouldn't uh, consider myself a Freudian by any degree. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, but I, I do think, just like any written text, there's a text and a subtext. And yes. I think you, you know, you look at a, you watch a person, and they're telling you a dream, and you're thinking about all sorts of different things, including the dream narrative, but also why this dream, why now? You know, oh, the, yeah, absolutely, yes, and I'm. Uh, particularly aware of that, because one thing which I would love to research on, but I don't have um, the time or the expertise, is uh, with regard to anxiety dreams. Uh, I don't know about you, but my experience with anxiety dreams, uh, I have a sort of, I I guess, ordinary number of anxiety dreams. The the strange thing about them is that they don't seem to be about the things that I'm really anxious about. Mm -hmm. Uh, And... uh, (laughs) You know, what I, my anxiety dreams are mostly about missing uh, trains and airplanes yes. or losing my luggage in airports. And, uh, of course, <laughs> those are real anxieties. Uh, yes. You know, when I'm mm. standing, waiting for my luggage, to, as I was a, a couple of days ago, to you know, come off the plane, I think, oh, gosh, you know, maybe I've lost <laughs> all my clothes and stuff, and stuff and so on. But uh, I mean, that, it is an anxiety. But it's not a deep existential right. anxiety, you know, uh, uh, and I, I need to describe to you what the, what those might be. You know, did I waste my life? Sure. Uh, you know, am I am I a good husband? Uh, so on and so right. on. I don't know what what, your, what my deepest anxieties mm-hmm. really really are. But they're <laughs> certainly not about uh, about luggage or missing trains. I don't think so. Um, mm-hmm. So, what is the relationship between our anxiety dreams and our right. and our real and our real deepest anxieties? One um, psychoanalyst to whom I uh, put this question said, well, you need to get more abstract about this. And when you're thinking about losing luggage, what you're really thinking about is loss in some wider, more symbolic sense. Um, and that, that, um, that kind of makes sense to me in mm-hmm. a way, but it, it doesn't seem to be terribly revealing. Uh, she, she said to me, well, you're, you're, uh, you, you may be thinking about the loss of all kinds of things, the loss of your parents or the loss of your of your youth or loss of this, that, or the other thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but what? Which of these, these right. things? Uh, the, the, dream, the dreams about losing luggage are not very revealing in, in, that, in that respect. Maybe I'm just uh, un- unhealthily obsessed with my possessions. You know, I don't want to lose them. <laughs> I want to lose my luggage. But, uh, well, then, in, if you would yeah. talk to other other uh, psychoanalysts or other dream uh, interpreters, you they would say, well, you know, the your the feeling of distress on losing one's luggage is maybe maybe that's the that's the the piece that's actually uh, misplaced because losing one's ba- losing old baggage would be a good thing in some context. So maybe yeah, we're yeah. we're anxious that that we're we're sort of leaving something behind, but actually that's a good thing. We're just not used to it yet. So there you yeah. can you can flip these things around. I that's one of the things that I really love about thinking about dreams is is just all the paradox 
that's within yes, them. Yes, yes, and they're, they're, they're constantly uh, bizarre, I find. Mm. There, was, there was a strange controversy in the um, 1990s. I'm not sure whether it's still going on among, uh, among, um, among scientists who work on dreams about whether dreams are really bizarre or not. But uh, And I wrote about that in my book. Mm. I won't repeat what I said about it. I think that, you know, uh, for very, very, very many dreams uh, have bizarre elements. Yeah. And this is, it seems to me rather obvious, actually. Uh, and uh, I don't know whether I can speak on the radio about erotic dreams, but uh, sure. but in any case, the last time I had one, which was pretty recently, uh, the, I mean, it was a sort of, you'd say, a normal kind of erotic dream, but, uh, but there was one very bizarre element in it, um, uh, uh, which I'm at completely at a loss to explain, uh, namely that the, that the waist of the other person who was in this mm. dream was um, preternaturally narrow. It mm. was uh, uh, maybe uh, it was some sort of re- memory of those um, paintings which you sometimes see, um, uh, 16th century paintings, oh, yeah. for example, where where women's waists were mm-hmm. uh, were sort of cruelly constricted in an unnatural uh, kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, but everything else about this dream which I'm referring to uh, seemed to be perfectly normal, uh, perfectly banal, but ex- except for the fact that the person in, in question uh, had, uh, as I say, an extraordinarily narrow way why. I cannot possibly yeah. work it out. It, it doesn't seem to have anything to do with anything that I'd seen or thought about in yeah. the previous couple of days, as you know how it is often uh, there's uh, elements in dreams which recall something which which you 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 just experienced recently, right. but um, it wasn't that. So um, uh, puzzle, puzzlement. Puzzlement, uh, yeah. Anyway, why this dream? Why now? Well, it is what? all of our what? good fortune that these uh, questions puzzle you because you've you know you've. Uh, gifted the rest of us this fabulous book. We're speaking to William Harris, who is a professor of history at Columbia University. His book, Dreams and Experience in Classical Antiquity. If you're at all interested in those kind of uh, issues about, well, where did, where, how did people first start thinking about dreams and what were some of the ways that, that people, that dreams that occurred to people in the ancient times and, and uh, how is that different or quite similar from now? I would encourage you to check out the book or even buy it on Amazon. Now, or even buy it. That's a great idea. Or yeah. even, <laughs> for instance, buy it. <laughs> uh, yes, you, you mentioned how uh, dreams were different in antiquity. Yeah. And uh, I think that one of the things which figures most um, prominently in this book, in fact, is the question about whether in fact, the experience has evolved or not. Uh, mm-hmm. There, there yes. is psychological evolution as well as physical evolution, but then physical evolution, we think generally in many, many respects, goes very slowly. Uh, should we think that um, the experience was just the same 2,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago, mm-hmm. um, as it is now? And um, one of my answers to this a question, but it's a rather tentative answer, concerns what I call in the book epiphany dreams, yes. which are dreams, I think you um, you mentioned this to mm-hmm. me uh, before, this mm-hmm. topic, uh, epiphany dreams are dreams in which a, a single figure appears, uh, and, and that figure is authoritative, and sometimes the figure can give information about what is going to happen, sometimes uh, the figure can give instructions, often the figure is in some way superhuman, uh, mm-hmm. representative of, of uh, God or of a, or of a God, uh, uh, authoritative um, in, in any case. And what I 
uh, argue in, in uh, my book is that while there were lots and lots of uh, dreams, both uh, real and fictional of this kind in antiquity, uh, and I traced this story down uh, to the beginning of the 18th century, in fact, um, there are in the modern West um, very few such dreams. And of course, somebody will immediately raise their hand and say, well, yes, but I had such a dream. But uh, and there are, there are some cases I know mm-hmm. of um, uh, a couple of uh, such cases. But if you look at the massive dream reports that are produced by um, by uh, scientists or by anyone else in the 20th or 21st century, you find very, very few uh, epiphany dreams, according to um, mm-hmm. the way that um, I'm <clears throat> defining this uh, phenomenon. That is to say, you find very few in the modern West. But as soon as you go outside of the sort of narrow uh, capsule world of ours, and you go to other places in the world, um, I mentioned this in, in my book, if you go, for example, even to Morocco or to Haiti or to Madagascar, mm-hmm. yeah. and you look in the anthropological literature, uh, then you begin to find that, in fact, uh, there are lots of reports of epiphany dreams or things that seem to be like epiphany dreams. So it's perhaps the modern West uh, starting in the 17th century in particular, I think, uh, that has somehow or other got rid of this uh, type of dream. Mm. But it goes on in in other places, apparently. Uh, There are all sorts of evidential questions and uh, evidential problems about all of this. But I think that that's the outline story about about epiphany dreams. Well, this this is the one, uh, you know, when I was reading different people's reviews of your of your book online, I, this is the thing that raised the most hackles to me. <laughs> yeah. Sort of okay. To... Tell me about that because I, sure. I have I've uh, I, I was reading um, uh, a review written by a, um, a Swiss uh, scholar the other mm-hmm. day, but uh, but that was in a learned periodical. T- uh, and, and I'll tell you what he would complain about in a minute if you like. But uh, but uh, tell me about the people who think I'm wrong about well, dreams. I mean. Think of Joseph Smith, you know Carrie Nation. As you say, there are there are uh, cases of uh, epiphany dreams in the modern Western uh, history, historical record. But I mean, just um, my experiences, I hear epiphany dreams from people all the time. Literally, voices that say, "Drop what you're doing and go to get a master's in journalism." Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, out of the blue, <laughs> just apropos of nothing. That sounds a pretty sensible kind of dream to me. I, well, this was I, I somebody had who had a whole different like career. And she <laughs> and she had this dream just apropos of nothing. And then so she actually followed it. But, I mean, this stuff happens all the time. And I guess one of my, my responses would be, well, how many epiphany dreams can one person cope with? I mean, how <laughs> many really want? I think one or two per yeah. lifetime is just fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes. Uh, I think my comeback of, about this will be that um, when you look at the dreams that give advice to people, like, you know, go, go and get a master's degree or something of this kind, um, mostly, and be- believe me, I have, I've uh, looked uh, long and hard at this evidence, mm-hmm. that what you find is that the advice is included in some more complex narrative, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, it's part of a conversation that takes place or it's, um, it's something that comes out in let's say a dream about a group of people uh, or uh, it's it's not uh, a, a clear-cut epiphany case most of the time I mean there are there are, there are exceptions as, yeah. I, as I say uh, and uh, of, of course um, 
you might say that these dreams are uh, a lot of the time uh, something of an exception in antiquity as well. Uh, that, mm-hmm. I would, that I would freely admit. In fact, in the earlier part of the uh, story um, that I'm talking about, I think that um, the, um, the, the Greeks tended to suppose that epiphany dreams um, that signified anything only came to people of a certain rank. That's uh, right. And uh, Aristotle is, Aristotle is uh, unintentionally rather funny about this because he says, well, uh, dreams can't be truth-telling because uh, dreams come to everybody. And if the gods were sending mm. uh, uh, true dreams, they would only send them to really, um, to, uh, really outstanding people. They wouldn't yeah. send them to just a riffraff, right. uh, mm-hmm. uh, only to people like Plato and me, in other, <laughs> in other words. Right. Uh, but, uh, but then the, the thing gets a bit more democratized, in, in, in a sense. The first uh, non-royal person who had a, has an epiphany dream that we ever hear about is, is in fact, Socrates. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that's a story which Plato tells, I think, uh, in order to show uh, that uh, Socrates was a very special person. He actually got a, an epiphany dream which told him he was in prison and he was about to be executed by yeah. the Athenians uh, and uh, a strange authoritative figure showed up and told him which exact day uh, he would die. Right. Uh, and uh, that was something very special uh, because Socrates was was very special. But uh, tell, me, tell me more about, uh, about uh, the epiphany dreams that you've encountered because that's um, uh, interesting news to me and I should Mm. open up up my mind a bit more on this subject. Well, you know, I find a lot of people have epiphany dreams around the time of uh, a death. If somebody close to them passes, they will, you know, at at some point in that process of of letting go and grief and so on, there is a dream where the person comes to uh, the the person and and, uh, the deceased comes to you in a dream and says, is something that's just very true about your life or uh, what's coming, you know, basically tells you, shows you how to look at a something. Sometimes it's it's more of a, don't worry, I'm fine, everything's okay. And yeah. sometimes it's a, this is what's been hanging you up, this is how you need to change it. And, and these are really pivotal dreams for people. I mean, not yeah. only do they help resolve major uh, life stresses, but they really, it, it, they're, they're sort of like um, spotlights. And, yes. and, and and as the person described it, you can yeah, see, okay, metaphor, yeah, yeah. okay, from now on, my life is sort of turned two degrees to the right because of the <laughs> frame of reference that this dream affords me. It's really interesting. That that, that is uh, completely fascinating to me, partly because it, it links up with some research that I've been doing since my dreams book hmm. about uh, hallucinations oh, in antiquity, yes. and um, and I've been reading about what scientists have to say about uh, hallucinations nowadays. And yeah. what I what I realized, which I I didn't know before, uh, is that in fact. Um, very large numbers of people in some countries the majority of, of, of people who experience this when when uh, a spouse dies in particular I think w- women experience this according to the evidence more than men do but uh, when a spouse dies it is um, very very common indeed for people to hallucinate uh, the uh, the dead person in some in some way and and generally the effect of, of this well it's disturbing of course but yeah. At the same time, it it, um, it helps to bring uh, closure, yeah. uh, and uh, so 
I think um, I, I, I'm very interested in what you said about, about such dreams uh, coming to people. Um, and I think that that, uh, that, that may be um, a big exception that I ought to be making mm. here. And uh, that's, a, that's a new uh, idea to me that mm. people often dream about the recently deceased in, mm-hmm. in, uh, in that kind of way. Um, and uh, I can't say that that has happened to, to, to me as, as far as I recall. Mm-hmm. Both my parents uh, have passed away, but I don't think that I ever uh, had that. I don't think I ever had a dream that uh, in which they returned and gave me advice particularly. But yeah. uh, anyway, my experience is a bit lacking in, in well, that respect. Well, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, or maybe my father knew that I wouldn't take his advice anyway. So. <laughs> What's the use? I'll go to somebody else <laughs> right, in their exactly, dream. <laughs> Well, one of the things about epiphany dreams that interests me is um, I've I've read some people from a more of a religious studies bent or more in the ministry who say, well, epiphany dreams are only valid if they are actually like they were 2,500 years ago and it's a visitation from a deity. And, and I think that that strikes me as a, a particularly rigid way to look at epiphany dreams because that that's simply just not our that's not our worldview right now not in general I mean there's pockets of that real um, serious belief but but most of us are, are, are kind of in the in the um, the shallows of the religious experience so to speak so I, I think epiphany dreams would appear in different forms for instance recently yeah, deceased yes and I think in fact in that sense um, the, the people who think like you are actually um, probably more faithful to tradition in, in, mm. in a way because after all you think about um, in Acts uh, chapter 16 if I remember right Paul is in Asia Minor, and he dreams about um, a figure who is, uh, I think, uh, the text says, a Macedonian. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, somebody who lived on the on the other side of the water in, in Europe, uh, inviting him to come across to Macedonia. Mm-hmm. And, and he's not. He doesn't. Uh, the acts, acts don't say that he dreamt of God or or of Jesus, mm-hmm. but, uh, but but of the Macedonian. And he clearly understood this, always according to the text of Acts, as a as a divine message, but it it wasn't delivered in person by uh, mm-hmm. by uh, by Jesus, for uh, for example, uh, and uh, and th- that is in um, that's rather in accord, I think, uh, with uh, Jewish tradition as mm-hmm. well, because uh, in the Old Testament, God does not like to uh, be seen; He likes to be heard from yes. time to time. As <laughs> I, I probably don't need to remind you, but uh, it's uh, it's not. It's not part of the Old Testament tradition uh, for uh, God to make frequent appearances, uh, yes. and uh, you know one doesn't have to uh, know very much about uh, uh, traditional Jewish ideas about the deity to be, uh, to, to, deity to, be um, sure. uh, to be unsurprised by that. Uh, so, um, so yes, because uh, uh, it, it's always been a, a, a tricky thing. We talked about this earlier for mm-hmm. um, for Orthodox Christians to decide whether a, a, a dream is coming from a good source or a bad source, right. uh, so, so to speak. And uh, all sorts of Christian theologians have, have uh, worried about this over, over 2,000 years without mm-hmm. really getting to an answer. Of course, it's, it, this is the a cousin of an, of another problem, and what which uh, which arises uh, in 
the Catholic population mm -hmm. uh, quite often, and that is to say, you know, when somebody comes along and announces that a miracle has taken place, how do you how do you decide <laughs> whether it's whether it's real or not? Because people quite often uh, say such things when they yes. really don't have any any basis for it at all, and 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 from uh, from the church point of view, it can be rather dangerous if people That's go right. around claiming that miracles have taken place when they're actually fraudulent or not miracles at all in some way. That's so, right. Uh, if there's miracles, you want to have the franchise. <laughs> well, yes, and then of course, <laughs> well, terrible things can ha can yes. happen. Uh, and uh, I was I'm now wandering from the point of dreams a bit, but uh, there was an there was an alleged miracle in a place I know in Italy mm -hmm. um, quite quite well, Civita Vecchia, which took place in the 1990s, which uh, had all sorts of economic uh, repercussions, uh, and uh, uh, and uh, yet the whole thing seems to have been based on fraud. And so you know, mm -hmm. it, it was. It was um, uh, a big anxiety, uh, in particular for the local bishop. You know what to what mm. to say about yeah. what to do about this. Uh, some some people fervently believe in it. Other people uh, can see that it, that the story is probably not true. Uh, yeah. Meanwhile, some people are making a living out of it. Yeah. <laughs> so, old problem. Old problem, endlessly fascinating. I'm just uh, we're winding up to the the top of the hour, but it was just reminding me of uh, the uh, Old Testament. You were speaking about the Old Testament. I was remembering uh, Joseph interpreting the Pharaoh's dream of the seven fat cows and the seven lean cows, and and uh, it, it strikes me that that dreams are clever. But you know, if if humans are clever-ish, they can use dreams to wind their way out of really impossible situations. I mean, I think a lot. A lot of, you know, Joseph then became the advisor to the Pharaoh because he, somehow he had a caveat in his interpretation of the Pharaoh's dream that says, well, of course, I don't know what it means, but, you know, perhaps but, it's yes. this. And yeah. that, <laughs> Just so, yes. I wish we could get uh, this degree of intelligence uh, go going on, um, yeah. you know, the really open questions there are about, the, uh, which are, I suppose, the well, there are two big questions, aren't there? One, which is sort of a bit of a theoretical, that one, and that is why do, why do we dream at all? Yes. And, and, the, and the other one is, though, it's the old question, you know, what is the relationship between the content of, mm -hmm. of dreams and uh, what is really going on in yes. our minds and our lives? Oh, exactly. Well, um, <laughs> that, the, and here we start the second hour of the conversation. <laughs> Oh, we have been talking to William Harris, who's the author of Dreams and Experience in Classical Antiquity. Uh, Professor Harris uh, teaches at um, the Department of History at Columbia University. He's the director of the Center for the Ancient Mediterranean and has received the Andrew Mellon Foundation Distinguished Achievement Award. You can find more out about um, Professor Harris at columbia.edu, the uh, Columbia University site, and just go to the history department, and you'll find a horridly out-of-date picture, but lots of inf interesting information, and the book is available on Amazon. It has been such a pleasure talking with you this morning. It's been a great pleasure for me talking to you as well. Thank you very much for inviting me onto the show. Oh, my pleasure. Um, have a good day. Same to you. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Ah. That was hugely entertaining and so informative. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. That ends this week's Dream Talk radio show podcast. Thanks for listening. And remember to tune in every Thursday from 9 to 10 a.m. at www.kows.fm. This is Ann Hill, and I'll see you again next week.